This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Pagan, I'm Pagan, and joining me today on Bookmark, I have Bridget Welsh. She is, of course, a BFM regular, the professor of political science at John Cabot University, longtime analyst of Malaysian politics. She joins us on the evening edition a lot. She has been featured in our GE14 programming, but she has a new book out, or rather an update to an old book, uh, the title of which I feel has to be said in this voice, The End of UMNO. I don't know why. Every time I read the title, Bridget, it feels like I have to use that voice. And you've changed the subtitle. It's now Essays on Malaysia's Former Dominant Party. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So, Bridget, before we get into the book and your contributors and your essays and how you've restructured this book, I'm curious, as someone who was following Malaysian politics for such a long time, on the night of May 9th, did you see that subtitle? Well, I saw the issue, even though the book title has a question mark, and I think there are still issues of where Amna will evolve and others. I saw that title in my mind two years beforehand. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that comes out in the book is this, that this has been an evolution uh, uh, and a decay of Omno for, for decades. Uh, and GE14, uh, I think uh, what we're seeing now is... Uh, is very much so the end of Amno. <laughs> uh, as a, from the perspective of what is the past, it has to evolve into something new. Um, and, and some of the past may help it with that, or it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, but I think uh, uh, on GE14 and subsequently, there are lots of other questions that are coming uh, that has uh, Amno's role of defining and, and, and the direction for Malaysian politics has actually become very diminished. I'm curious about the role of Najib Raza versus, say, Patlah in this eventual decline of Amno, Because what happened after GE12 was something of a watershed. And I guess a lot of analysts say, well, Amno didn't change fast enough. When, you know, when that ball hit, they were, they were shattered but not broken yet. And they didn't do enough to actually change their ways. We thought that might happen when Najib Razak took over because for at least the first six months, he seemed like he was making all of these crazy progressive statements. I'm going to abolish sedition, the ISA, etc., etc., etc. Is this end of Amno? is this fall, this decline, does it have to do primarily with Najib Razak and the events of the last four years? Well, I think the original book uh, pointed out that a lot of things that happened to Amno in the contemporary context happened under Mahathir himself. So I think if we want to begin the story, we can begin the story at different points of time. Uh, in, the new, in the new edition, in the epilogue essay, uh, Clive Kessler puts, this, puts a story beginning with Tun Razak. Uh, I think uh, uh, John Funston uh, puts a lot of emphasis on Tun Mahathir uh, and what happens to the party during the Mahathir time. Uh, my own emphasis puts a lot of emphasis on Najib Tun Razak in the last decade. And one of the things I do is compare what's happened UMNO electorally in uh, GE 13 and 14, uh, 2008, 2013 and 2018, with what happened during Palah's time, uh, 2008 and, uh, and uh, 2004. And what's interesting is that if uh, 
if we compare, as I do, what I call UMNO core seats, mm. the seats that UMNO have traditionally held really, you know, for many of these areas since independence. But I look at the last five elections because I think in looking at the party um, now, I compare it to 1999, which is where you've seen splits and changes. So I look at five elections. And what's fascinating is that for all for UMNO's electoral fortunes, um, Patla was a wash in the sense that he brought in a lot in 2004 and lost all of that in 2008. And while he lost the two-thirds, in the UMNO core seats, he actually didn't really change UMNO's political fortunes. Right. It was Najib uh, in 2013 and 2018 where we've seen this massive deterioration of political support. And, you know, people talk about GE14 as a Malay tsunami. I would talk about it as an UMNO tsunami uh, in the sense that the, it came from within the system itself. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's Najib who brought about significant shifts. Uh, he in 2013, he allowed NGOs to be uh, uh, directing the patronage instead of party machinery. Uh, he allowed uh, department uh, programs and party organs like the Wanita Amno, uh, which had been the really the, the, the front line of campaigning, yeah. to, to become to have weaker leadership and have less interaction with the base. And these things erode even before we talk about the one MDB scandal. Uh, it began much earlier during in the, during the Najib Rosma decade. When I think about Amno and I guess their fortunes, it kind of boils down to something of a simplistic notion for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always about how much people are willing to put up with, whether that be corruption or patronage, at which point do they draw the line? And it felt like with GE14, as you said, it wasn't just the public. It was those within the system of Amno who had gone enough is enough. We need to burn this thing to the ground. I mean, is that an accurate assessment? Well, I think the the anger was not directed uh, at UMNO per se uh, for uh, many of those inside the party. Uh, but uh, I think it was directed at Najib, and which is why I put a lot of emphasis on Najib himself uh, as being the person who is the driver. But for many others, say, you know, if we look at the periods of time of, of where the Chris was waived and, and, the, uh, and um, no, you know, for, you know, stop the influence or, or neutralize the influence of, of in such a hubris way of other parties inside Barça National, which you know, Barça National died, and um, it, it really died in 2013, um, with the exception of the East Malaysia component parties. But it had its, you know, its death knells, were, the was coughing was from 2008. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, and now so, we're back to the original alliance. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's not even really original because it doesn't have the legitimacy and it doesn't have the Correct. base. And, uh, and, and, and it's all really about the party assets as opposed to the parties and what they represent. Uh, I think uh, uh, this is a very different scenario. But, you know, I think that uh, when we think about about uh, the evolution and the processes uh, that were ongoing uh, and the reaction of the public, I think that from many non-Muslims and non and non-Malays, uh, it was very much about Amno had become a party of uh, that lacked its credibility of representing them and representing and protecting the nation uh, and and promoting Katwana Malaysia, Malayu, Katwanian Islam, which were seen to be exclusive. So there was more anger among. Uh, uh, this segment of the population towards UMNO. But within UMNO itself, it was very much about the leadership failing and betraying the Malays. So let's talk about the book, Bridget. Um, this updated 
volume collects the essays from the original, but you've got all of your essayists to write epilogues, post-GE14 epilogues. And let's begin with the very first one, which is the foreword by Saifuddin Abdullah. And I was curious as to why you asked him in the first place to write a foreword. I mean, personally, and I've said this on air many times, I've always found Saifuddin Abdullah to be one of the most intellectually honest politicians in UMNO at the time. He spoke his mind and he never spent a lot of time defending the indefensible. And I find that to be something quite unique for a politician because a lot of the time it can be political suicide. Uh, but talk to me about your reasons for getting Saifuddin's overview on what was going on. Because his epilogue, I think, is fantastic. It's a great way to start the book. Well, I think um, originally when we brought, when I invited Saifuddin into the collection, I felt it was important to get somebody who was inside the party uh, to speak about what was happening in the party, but at the same time had left it. So he could actually be uh, uh, direct, uh, forthright of what he thought were his observations. And one of the things I try to do both in this collection and in that collection is to to have multiple sets of voices. Uh, uh, And that's why, for example, in this new collection, we have a short forward by Tunku Razali Hamza as well, um, so that we, we're trying to get voices inside to speak about these things as much as uh, as possible. And and in asking Saifuddin again to, to do the forward, uh, originally when I asked him, he'd be, it was before he became officially foreign minister. Uh, and of course, when you're pressing uh, him for the for the for the <laughs> essay, he's already foreign minister and he's balancing many many different things. And 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 he was extraordinarily generous. And I think uh, oh, it's a long essay. It's, it's a long, a long essay. He didn't think, phone it in. No, it is. It is it is quite substantive, and I think it's quite thoughtful as well uh, about uh, and, and one of the nice things about all the essays is they do speak to their original essays to their arguments that they raised, um, which is what we were trying to do. We're continuing a conversation because this is a conversation uh, about, and it's not a conversation just about scholars and academics and practitioners, but it's also scholars for Malaysians about what's happening as the situation is evolving. And so Saifuddin's essay really highlights. Um, what this means from the perspective of Pakatan Harapan coming in uh, vis-a-vis and what it's doing and how that relates to Amno's future. So your essayists are John Funston, Clive Kessler, James Chin, and of course yourself. I will start by putting forward the caveat that these aren't short essays. They are long reads, but if you are at all interested in Malaysian politics, it is impossible to disentangle Amno from it, whether pre-GE14, obviously, but also post-GE14, because they still have a very important role to play. Their membership among Malaysians and, I guess, their reach in Malaysia is still incredible, and therefore they play a very, very important part. Talk to me about that reach, um, with, in particular with regards to um, Clive's essay, because Clive's original essay, of course, was Adulukini Slamania, then, now, and always, uh, the Amno slogan, if you will. And, of course, his epilogue is looking back and going forward. And I think that's what a lot of people want to know. Does Amno need to completely burn to the ground and be rebuilt from the ground up for it now to be a significant influence in Malaysian politics because it feels like everyone's just picking at the carcass at the moment. Well, I think one of the cl- things that Clive is making in his essay, and I think it is a very rich essay, so I encourage people to read it themselves as opposed to giving an editor giving you a, a summary of it. Uh, but one of the things he points out is that in order for people to move 
back, uh, uh, move forward. There has to be an assessment of the history of what's gone wrong <laughs> and where and the paths that were taken and then maybe not taken and why they were not taken. And I think this is true not just of UMNO, but I think this is this is true of uh, of of more generally in policy and, and and as people move as Malaysia moves forward, there has to be a reckoning of how Malaysia's got to where it's at now in the in the problem areas as, as well as an acknowledgement of the strengths. But I think what Clive does is that he he talks about the impact of things after May 1969, <laughs> um, and and what happens as an adoption of certain policies and certain forms of leadership, the types of legitimation and ideology that the party adopts, particularly in terms of embracing issues of political Islam, <laughs> and how that shapes with how the party is emerged into its new forms of identity. So I think it, it's it's he is emphasizing uh, a need to go back and to go back honestly. And and this is a real challenge for Amno because I think, first of all, uh, many people have forgotten their history or their history has been retold in a particular way or a particular framing that they don't see it in that particular lens. Uh, and at the same juncture, uh, we have a situation where uh, many people don't want to go back they, they, uh, at all uh, because uh, the sense was that was the glory days. But in fact, that's where the roots of what's where things went wrong did go wrong. But of course, this is, you know, there still is a deep deniability, um, uh, denial uh, within Amno. Um, and we can see this in, in the discourse and the, the, the shenanigans that of many of its leaders are adopting in the kind of post, um, uh, post-GE14 context. There is a thread that seems to run throughout all of these essays. And I guess in some essays it's explicit and in others it's implicit. But this idea that the entire political system as we know it today was crafted, influenced by UMNO, whether it's political patronage, whether it's how government works, and it feels like something of a quagmire. So much so that even people who are jumping in now, whether it's from PKR or DAP or Bersatu, it's hard to disentangle from that quagmire. Is it possible for politicians to move Beyond that, the scholar A.B. Shamsul made a very important point to me in, in our conversations about Amno, and I acknowledge it in my essay. And one of the things I point out is that almost all the Malay parties in Malaysia, PAS, Bersatu, even PKR, to a certain degree, although PKR is more multiracial, but elements within that came from Amno. So Amno is the mother node of what of political parties in this country. And it comes within that, there are elements of the political culture within the party at that particular point of time. So it's not just that UMNO controlled the system and controlled the policies and held the reins of power for 61 years, and in itself branding the issues of racism, of religion, the, the issues of money politics, the issues of, of a sense of kind of dependence on the state, um, and in and 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 the way that in a kind of hierarchical feudal type of system that 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 Amno uh, left as a legacy, but also that that it actually birthed other parties, uh, and and I think you know there has not you know when we talk about the contemporary context and concerns that are already being raised even a few months on about patronage and how the system operates uh, and who is getting what in the sense that the that that political office is about entitlement and delivery as opposed about as opposed to providing services and actually solving problems, uh, I think. 
think uh, it's not under it's understandable to recognize how how deep Amno is entrenched within the system, and, and I think many people in in who who talk about regime change because I I don't think there is regime change. I think there's been a political transition, <laughs> but it is not necessarily regime change because we still have. The, the elements of old Malaysia that are deeply entrenched, uh, uh, and they come out. I mean, you will see on, on occasion a racist comment coming from a government minister yeah. in office. Um, and some people would say they're racist comments <laughs> in that situation. And I think, um, you know, uh, you're right to say that some people want change. And I think that's particularly the case in this Bangsar bubble. Um, but I would say that there are others who Want, want the things to change back, yeah. you know, and that, and they're unhappy with the differences. There's a lots of there's a pluralist of views in the way in Malaysia as a whole. And and I guess those people who wanted things to change back, possibly saw Mahathir as a route to that change. Yeah. We want it to be the way it was back in the 90s and the 80s. And in August, I was in Terengganu, and one of the things I was outside of, uh, uh, of Kuala Terengganu, and I was speaking to some villagers and having a, uh, some, you know, wonderful um, budu and, uh, and other things and in, 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 in chatting. And one of the things that this this old lady uh, spoke to me, and she said, "Yeah, you know, Amno is still in power. Mahathir is there." And so, for many of these villages, villagers, uh, they they think this is the same. <laughs> they don't think that there is any change. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about Mahathir. But before that, I mean, at the end of your original essay, you talk about how in the last two decades, Amno has proved unable to reform, right? I think it was the opening to one of your paragraphs. And I'm curious as to what you think that reform is going to look like right now, because it's close to 200 days in, and yet Zaid Hamidi is something of a weak leader. Is that reform going to come from within Amno, or do you think it's going to come from without? You're very diplomatic when you say somewhat of a weak leader. <laughs> with respect, I think that uh, I think developments are showing that he ha- he comes with a lot of baggage, and I think that um, this is something that the party is dealing with and having to deal with. Uh, and one of the things that we the book talks about is that there's actually you know there were two elections. I mean, there's a GE14, and then there was the, the election of Zahid Hamidi of as course. president uh, and the party upon election. their 70th birthday. Uh, yes, uh, uh, and in that context, so we see uh, we see a situation actually upon the 72nd 72nd birthday, sorry yes. birthday. Uh, so what we see is a situation where um, <clears throat> they they chose. In the the Amno election of uh, in June, uh, the party election, uh, the efforts to try to reform the party uh, were thwarted by the warlords and others, uh, and, and now they're having to you know to deal with the consequences of that, where many of its leaders uh, are going are, are facing charges and are going to jail, uh, and the uh, ones that aren't are quitting, or well they're not yet in jail, but they are but they're going to face those sets of issues. So there's erosion that was going to happen, and then we we could see that. Um, um, and there are splits, and I think we can we can see this, for example, in the PD by-election, where Isa Samad, a, f- a very important warlord, and and Negrisembilan, um, lost know, his deposit. Lost his deposit. It's insane. But it speaks to what's, what are the splits within the party, yeah. and, and where the standing of the party. I mean, when a warlord like this, you know, faces the public, and so and as a consequence, you know, Amno's survival strategy is not driven so much by facing the public because they know if they face the public, it's you know, they, 
they can forget about it. So they're choosing to focus on trying to, to use elite strategies of negotiations and deal making. And this is why Zahid comes out and says, we'll make a deal with anyone. Um, and, and so they know they want to try to get into power through more undemocratic ways as opposed to uh, as, a way, as opposed to having an election and facing the public and trying to, to win power. So I think the party is in continual crisis. Uh, and that crisis, in, in a sense, uh, I'll say I think one of the challenges of a book like this, which we did want to continue the conversation, is that the story is not over. We're, uh, the, the, the crisis is continuing to evolve um, as the party has to deal with the fact that it will have its leaders uh, um, uh, you know, facing very serious charges. And I talk about, and I think others do as well, but this particularly the sense that that many of the they're going to the new strategy is to capitalize on victimization. Hmm. You know that we are you know we are the mar we are the ones being attacked and others. But this is only going to go so far because many people many people would say, well, good riddance, <laughs> uh, you deserve it. Uh, others would be a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, and I think you know political transition has re- resulted in a lot of displacement of people who have traditionally held positions of power or security, uh, even down into the into the village levels. And this is this is creating a lot of uncertainty and a lot of resentments, um, which of course Amno is capitalizing on. But you can't be a national party to capitalize on this type of anger uh, in a particular way. And I think all of the essays in different ways point out that you're going to have to do more than what you are doing if you're going to be anything of a viable uh, political actor in the system that actually can move the country forward. And it's funny you say that because I think a lot of the conversations post-GE14 have still kind of focused on individuals as potential reformers. With the Amno election itself, we spoke about Tunku Razali, we spoke about Kairi um, as potential reformers, as individuals with visions to kind of lift this party out of its current stupor, if you will. However, I think it ignores the fact that there is an ideological issue at play. And and I wanted your opinion on this because we've had a lot of conversations about, oh, well, you know, Pakatan Harpan has to be careful because if they push the envelope too far, Amno will be back in three years, four years, five years. It, you don't have to wait for a next election kind of thing, right? And it feels from my assessment, at least my individual assessment, that Barca National is no more. Amno can't take Malaysia without the minority support. And so therefore, it proves the math doesn't make sense at this point of time for Amno to come back. And I think we often, our conversations get a little caught up in what's going on in Trump's America and Brexit. But I feel it's a misplaced comparison. Is that accurate? Well, first of all, I mean, I think we all know, and I think Pakatan Harapan should be reminded of this, they are a minority government. And a lot of it depends on them staying together and working together. And I think one of the issues that has evolved in the last uh, few months, and in particular is an issue in the post-PD context, is how much they will continue to maintain together, maintain that cohesiveness. And there have been concerns about policy and about direction uh, as a result of uh, a a very multifaceted coalition coming together. And both AMNO and PAS um, are 
feed and help to contribute to the sense that there is a, a division within Pakatan Harapan. And unfortunately, many Pakatan Harapan leaders also feed that division, um, which... They're uh, not the best communicators. That's what I've well, realized. I, well, I think they don't have a clear media strategy. <laughs> yes, uh, but that is, uh, that's a, that's another <laughs> here or there. But stepping back from that, I think that uh, one has to ask this question about where are the more conservative, more of the um, kind of entrenched kind of world, more racialized and world outlooks. Um, and I think it's a misnomer to say, or a mistake to say that these don't exist in Malaysia. They do. Um, and we can see snippets of that even in Pakatan Harapan's responses to issues of affirmative action and issues associated with dealing with some of the challenges of political Islam and managing uh, the diversity within the context of uh, Malaysia society. But we can particularly see it in the kind of the modus operandi of polarization of race, the mobilization of religion that the opposition is is adopting. And I think the PD by-election is, is, is illustrative of, of how some of those forces are capitalizing. I have long said that the, to me, the, and this is some of the conversation that happens in the book, is that the force to watch is PAS. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that PAS did not lose its deposit, but it did not lose its deposit in a state that it has traditionally done very poorly in. And uh, so people go to things that they feel that there's a sense of uh, security or cohesive, uh, a sense of, uh, um, you know, Amno tsunami. A lot of that exodus wasn't to Pakatan Harapan. A lot of that exodus happened in to pass, and we don't see it so clearly from the perspective of of uh, what people that dynamic in the urban areas. But my estimate is that you know that pass won thirty one percent of the Malay vote, which is more than that of Pakatan Harapan. Yeah. Hmm? Uh, while Amno still controls won the dominant perspective, almost forty five percent of the Malay vote, forty four or something. I think what we see is a situation where that. Is shifting, <laughs> and as as more erosion right uh, uh, within Amno itself, and the lack of credibility of its leadership, uh, and you know, let's say Mat Hassan becomes the president of Amno because they're not going to hold a party elections. Does he have the caliber to to uh, move forward when it's when the party's other officials are going to jail um, uh, besides the president or being charged? I think that my my perspective is that you're going to see multiple people facing uh, um, charges that are in the senior leadership in the Supreme Council um, as we move forward, and this will have a big taint. And then they and and many of those people who hold these outlooks, these worldviews that are very different. Um, and then, you know, all societies have these conservative worldviews. Yeah. The question is, do they have vehicles or individuals that allow to channel them to become dominant? Huh? And and whether or not there are alternative narratives that are actually countering that. I think this is a test for Pakatan Harapan, whether there's this counter-narrative. But um, I think PAS and, to a certain degree, AMNO will beat those more conservative drums as hard as they can because it, it becomes their survival, which, of course, uh, is very fractious. And, and these feelings and these sentiments are very real. Let's talk about Mahadev before I let you go because I'm still so fascinated by what is going on with Mahadev, with this second act or third act, whatever you want to call it. Is Mahadev an anchor point? for Malaysia Baru, for this kind of 
institutional and governmental reform that the country needs to move forward? Or is he just a placeholder? I would say that he, he can be a facilitator. So he's much more than a placeholder. But the question is, how much will he facilitate uh, becomes the issue. Uh, I think, you know, in contrast to an Anwar, uh, uh, Mahathir is much more of a bridge inside the system. And he pulls more of the traditional Amno political base behind him. Uh, and given that he, his stature of, of being in the prime minister for 22 years beforehand, and given the fact that he still has very high levels of support, and this was his mandate, not anyone else's, um, I think uh, his role that he can, his impact can be quite profound. And I think, uh, you know, the tests for for Mahathir will be not just what he does to bring about institutional reforms from Malaysia and to help to bring back, um, you know, to strengthen some of many of the institutions he himself helped to erode in terms of strength early on. Um, but I think it will also be, um, he will ironically be the one that leads the legacy for Amno itself as well in the contemporary context. You know, it, it, he, he can facilitate a much uh, a different transformation of the party um, by how he responds to the, in the contemporary context. Bridget, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. So I, I made a mistake when I read the title originally. I forgot that there was a question mark. So Bridget's book is called The End of Amno. Essays on Malaysia's former dominant party. Um, you can actually find it at all good bookstores. I urge you to go check it out if you are at all interested in Malaysian politics. This gives you some tremendous insight into the future of the party that we have had in power for the better part of six decades. It is crazy what has happened. So the original essays are great to read as well because we get some insight as to what happened before. But these epilogues post GE14 uh, provide some fascinating uh, numbers too. So it's not just um, analysis, it actually breaks down the actual numbers as to what's been going on. So go check it out. You've been listening to Bookmark. I'm Uma Paganampake Pagan. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.